Let's turn together, please, to Genesis chapter 1. We've been doing a study of the book of Genesis. We haven't gotten very far. We're up through day 6. And so day 6 in Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 26 through 28. In just a moment, we're going to stand together and read this. Day, day number 6 includes three different parts. There's the creation of the animals in verses 24 and 25. There's the creation of mankind in verses 26 through 28. And there's the creation of food in verses 29 through 30. We talked about the creation of the animals last week when it talked about three different categories of the animals. There was the cattle, and by the cattle or the beast that he's describing, he's talking about domesticated animals. He's describing the creeping things or the smaller animals that would come. And then he also describes the wild beasts. When he talks about all three of these different forms, you remember there's a key phrase, and that is that each one was created according to its kind. According to his kind is a reminder that God is the one who gave all of these animals with the distinctions that they have, so that a dog will always be a dog, a cat will always be a cat, a cow will always be a cow. Now, is there development within species? Sure, there's development within species. But even though there's development within species, we don't see that transitional form that would, uh, that would be a supportive of something like the theory of evolution. So when we come to the scriptures, we don't need to be intimidated by any kind of science or theories that might be out there. The Bible is good science because it is God himself who created all things. And having created all things, we can trust and believe exactly what he had said. We can also believe that he not only created the animals according to their kind, but he created man. And creating man and providing food for us, the food is the last portion of what he talks about. But the most substantive part of day six is found for us in verses 26 through 28. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, please with reverence for God and His Holy Word. And I'd like to read this in its entirety, even though we're not going to get very far in this, because there's so much that needs to be said, and there's so much that these verses are speaking to us concerning. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God, created, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Look at verse 31. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. This is the word of the living God. Would you please be seated? As you are seated, there are two primary doctrines that are being addressed in verse 26 and being introduced. As a matter of fact, these are become foundational doctrines to what we would study throughout the whole rest of the Scripture. And so when we come to Genesis chapter 1, and we believe that this is the literal, inerrant, inspired, sufficient Word of God, and we have no doubts about it, then we start with no doubts about the revelation of Scripture, and from that we are able to be sure that what God says about mankind and the nature of man is true, and what God says about the nature of God himself is true as well. So we find the doctrine of God within this passage, and we'd call that theology proper. It says, let us make man in our image. And so the Lord God formed man and uh, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So it's God himself who's a complexity. He is a plurality saying, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. But then he's also a singularity, and that singularity is found in verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And so we find a complexity and a singularity. We're going to go into that and delve into it tonight. Then there's also the doctrine of man. And by the doctrine of man, we understand that's called anthropology. And anthropology is not something you just have to go to uh, college for. And a humanistic, atheistic 
uh, anthropology would tell you the, the study of mankind, assuming that he is a, a naturally evolved being, just a higher form of all of the other animals. And they would try to explain uh, mankind without being, there being any kind of supernatural, including a supernatural soul. We're going to reject that anthropology, and we're going to come to the anthropology of what the Bible says about mankind, having been created in the image of God. So we're going to find and understand what it means to be in the image of God. We're also going to understand dominion as a second part of uh, the creation of man. And then when it comes to the doctrine of man, we'll also find gender. I'm not going to try to address all of those things tonight. We'll see how far we can get. But let's begin with this doctrine of God. And it's going to be fascinating that uh, even the Shema that had been quoted earlier tonight by Judy is something that we're going to delve into and understand just a little bit further. It says, let, God said, let us make man in our image. You may remember that from the very first verse, we understood the complexity of God when it says, in the beginning, God created. The word God is the word Elohim. Elohim is found in a plural form, and we found with that plural form that there was a complexity that was also a singularity. What do we mean by singularity? Well, in the plural form, God created and created is in the singular form. So it's a plural who created a singular so it is a plurality that acts in singularity, and that is what we find in this passage, and it's amplified just a little bit further. Uh, in this verse, it doesn't come out and say that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but it does give us an understanding that the complexity in which God, Elohim, would recognize himself and say, speak of, of pronouns that are in the plural and say, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, he's not here referring to the angels. Instead, he's referring to that complexity that is also the singularity that is God. And tonight, I want to do a little bit of a study, and I want to understand and help you understand, according to the Scripture, that God indeed is one. I'd like you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It had been sung for us a little bit earlier. This is one of the main tenets, the key verse in all of uh, the Jewish religion. And then the Jewish religion, they are depending upon this, and rightfully so. We as Christians take this foundation as a, as a key verse. In Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. When it describes the Lord our God, Jehovah, who is Elohim, the, the Lord our God is one. And to say that he is one means that he is a singularity and that there is no other God beside him. Let's see that a little bit further. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. It's only a page or so away. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4, look at verses 35, and then also verse 39, where it says, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord himself is God. There is none other besides him. Once again, we find the singularity that God is one, and he alone is God. Look at verse 39. Therefore, know this day and consider it in your heart that the Lord himself is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other becomes very, very clear in the Old Testament, becomes very clear actually throughout the Scripture that God Himself is one. So if God is one, let's continue to amplify upon this singularity and recognize that there are not a plurality of gods. We don't believe in some sort of polytheism. Uh, instead, we come to a basic theism in which we understand that there is one God. And so this one God is how He is revealing Himself. Let's see that it's not only in Deuteronomy, but it's other portions. Turn with me to Isaiah you turn to Isaiah chapter 44, we find the same emphasis, the same thing being proved. And I want to establish very clearly that God is one. And just because we believe in the lordship of Christ and the lordship of the Spirit, the lordship of the Father, that all of them are God, we don't deny this reality and this truth that God is one. So Isaiah 44 and verse 6, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, 
I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Once again, to recognize that there is no other God beside him. This is the uniform message throughout the scripture. Isaiah 45, if you just turn the page over, look at verses 21 and 22. He again establishes the same truth. There is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Once again, what we're finding is the message that God alone is God and that there is not a plurality. There's not, or I'm sorry, there's not a polygamy that we're, or I'm sorry, polytheism that we're following. There's not a a multiplicity of gods that are out there. We're not some form of Hinduism. Uh, We're not some form of Greek religion. Instead, there's a recognition and a statement throughout the scripture that God is one. This carries over to the New Testament, such as uh, John 17, verse 3. And this is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so there is only one true God. And the New Testament agrees with it. Turn with me also to Mark. The book of Mark is where Jesus himself agrees with the same principle, and he doesn't contradict it. Instead, he he asserts it. He states the very same truth. Mark 12 and verse 32. Um, So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but he. So when Jesus was talking about loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, as being the greatest commandment, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself, he said, you have spoken the truth. There is only one God, and the Lord Jesus Christ would acknowledge that and recognize it. That's also known in the early church. Finally, this will be the last verse that we look to that talks about the singularity that God is one. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is an epistle of the New Testament church. Uh, New Testament church would also believe the same truth, that God is one. We reject polytheism based on 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4, among these other verses. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. Look down at verse 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and, and we for him... There is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we all live. So in this passage, he's again affirming the fact that there is one God who is the Father. And then he talks about there is one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is where things become a little bit complicated. Again, in Genesis chapter 1, when we find it telling and teaching us that the Lord God said, uh, let us create man in our image. And when he spoke of this complexity and plurality, He also speaks of a singularity, and so the singularity is something that we've emphasized, and we've seen it, and we recognize God is one, and we believe that there is only one God. But believing in monotheism, that there is one God, we also recognize that that God is complex, and the complexity is the plurality that makes him one, and the plurality is us, the ones who are expressing us, we're making man in our image. And as a result, we come and we believe that there would eventually, we find throughout the Bible, that there would be three who are making up the one who is God. And when we come, we don't believe in the Trinity primarily because we can look to uh, verses that tell us that, oh, well, there's Trinity. Now, there are verses that do speak of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit in a Trinitarian formula. I'm going to refer to them in just a moment. But really, the reason that we believe in the Holy Spirit, we don't even try to explain it by things that are complex to us, like an egg, where you have the shell, and you have the, you have the yolk, and you have the, the white. 
but we're not going to try to create it uh, and give you illustrations of it. I'm not going to try to be fancy and help us fathom it. All I want you to know is the Bible asserts very clearly the Lord is one. There is only one God. And yet he's also going to come and he's very clearly going to state for us that the Father is God and that the Son is God and that the Spirit is God. And because we believe all of those assertions of the Scripture that the Father, Son, and Spirit are all God, that now makes sense when we say God is one, and yet there are three persons in that Godhead, and so Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, with what I just stated to you, that is something that is heavily, strongly denied by those that are, would be Orthodox Jewish, as an example. They would say, well, Father, Son, Spirit, you're really coming to uh, plurality, or you're coming to, um, you're coming to polytheism. But it wouldn't just be them, it would be Jehovah's Witnesses. If you were to sit down with Jehovah's Witnesses and have some sort of study with them, they would say, well, we reject all of the ancient Greek uh, deities and all of their stories about their multiple gods. And having rejected all of that, we believe in full monotheism. And because we believe in monotheism, we believe that Jesus is a sub-deity. He is not Jehovah, the eternal God. Well, I had a conversation with one one time. We're having a study, and he said, okay, there's God, Jehovah, the Father, and then he has sub-gods. He has children. He has Jesus, and he had Satan. He had Lucifer, and these were his sons. And I said, wow, you're telling me that God himself has sub-gods and that those sub-gods are greater than other people that are there? I said, you know what? It sounds to me like we're right back to Greek mythology. Well, that didn't go over very well at all, and, uh, and yet it was true that's exactly what they were talking about. They were describing Greek mythology. And to that guy, I said, I totally reject what you've just said. I reject polytheism. And I, as a monotheist, believe in one God. But I also believe, and this is the key statement, I also believe that Jesus Christ is fully God, the self-existent creator of all things, the eternal one, the one who is omnipresent, the one who is omniscient, the one who knows all things and has all power, the one who has life in of himself. Jesus Christ is fully God. As a matter of fact, I can state it this way and this strongly, that Jesus Christ is Jehovah God. He is the eternal self-existent one. And Jesus would be so strong in affirming that, that he would not only say before Abraham was, I am, and using the name I am, he's referring to Jehovah, the self-existent eternal God. He also says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. It is important, it's imperative that we would come to believe and understand that Jesus Christ is God. They say, Jeff, why are you going into this? This is important. Because when it comes to our understanding that it is God who made man in our image, according to our likeness, that complexity that he's referring to is talking about at least, well, uh, at least more than one, there's a plurality. But within that, we can find the three assertions, the three statements that I've already made. God is one, and yet the Father is God. The Son is God, and the Spirit is God. The Father being God is not argued by anyone. Everyone would recognize that the eternal Father, Jehovah himself, is God, the self-existent. And so we recognize that. We don't even have to argue it, prove it. We don't have to demonstrate that. Everyone grants that. The Spirit is also God, but here is what we have to argue about that. We have, would have to come and we'd have to say that the Spirit is not just some sort of emanation. He's not some sort of power. He's not just an expression of God. Instead, he's a distinct personality. How would you argue for, from the scripture, the reality that the spirit is a distinct personality from the father? Well, here's how you would recognize that he's a personality. He can be grieved. To be grieved means that he takes on the elements of personhood, and only as a person can he be grieved. 
He can be blasphemed. And to blaspheme the Holy Spirit means that he's not just an emanation. He's not just a power. He is a person. And as a person, he can be blasphemed. He is, can be sent. And as the Father sent the Spirit, Jesus Christ said, I'm going to my Father. So the Father will send the Spirit. And the Spirit being sent and being received demonstrates that he is a distinct person. And the reality is that he anoints, he strengthens, he does his own work. And we see him distinct from the other parts of the Godhead in that the Spirit is a distinct person. So that's all of the argument that I'm going to make. I'm just going to present it. That's what the Scriptures present. All of it is true. But here's the one that really is the kicker. The key one is the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ is something that would not only be denied by those who are from a Jewish heritage or a Jewish belief system, not only denied by Jehovah's Witnesses, it would be denied by Mormons, It would be denied by other people, and anyone who denies that Jesus Christ is God cannot be a true biblical Christian. One of the fundamentals of our Christian faith is that we believe that Jesus Christ himself is fully God and yet fully man. And there are good reasons biblically for us to believe this, and I think it's imperative for me tonight to just go together with you through both Old Testament passages and New Testament passages that remind us that within this complexity, let us make man in our image Within that, we are talking about how the the Father is God, the Spirit is God, but also Jesus Christ himself is the eternal, self-existent God. And so tonight, I'm going to pour this time into some key verses that remind us that indeed, Jesus Christ is the eternal God. Let's begin in the Old Testament. With the Old Testament, I'm reminding you of some of the passages that that we had looked at as far as the Bible um, conference that we had earlier this summer. And our our friend, um, Brother John Metzger, had come and shared some of these verses with us. And there were some that I thought were just essential. And what we would find is that though he is not called Jesus Christ, and he's not called uh, the Son generally in the Old Testament, that this person, this second person of the Trinity, is definitely seen and he's evident. He is fully God, and yet he is distinct from God. And so that's why we have the complexity and the singularity brought together. Let's begin with some verses where he is called the angel of the Lord. Turn with me, please, to Genesis chapter 22. I think it's imperative that we all would look at the passage and be able to see it together. In Genesis chapter 22, it talks about the angel of the Lord coming to Abram. Now, Abraham had already come and obeyed God by offering his son, Isaac. And as he was offering him as a sacrifice, and he's being prepared to lift up his knife and is now being prepared to offer him on the altar, here's what we read. Genesis 22, verse 9, they came to the place which God had told him. Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac, his son, laid him on the altar upon the wood, and Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Look at verse 11. This is the key part for us tonight. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the lad, nor do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not with withheld your son from me, your only son from me. And then Abraham lifted his eyes. He looked, he saw the ram that was caught in the thicket. Abraham went and he took the ram. He offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And then notice what it says here in verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven. And he said, by myself, I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son blessing, I will bless you multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the earth. 
Within this passage, we have the angel of the Lord speaking for the Lord, and the angel of the Lord is distinct from Jehovah, and yet he says, I swear by myself, and as the Lord, I am going to enter into this covenant with you. So though the angel of the Lord is distinct, the angel of the Lord has the same authority. He speaks with the same name, and he's able to give the same promise. He says, by myself, I give this to you. And so the person that is the angel of the Lord represented in this place is someone who, as the angel of the Lord, is distinct from, but the same as the Lord Jehovah, the eternal self-existent God. We read more about the angel of the Lord in, uh, in Exodus chapter 23. I think that's also a passage I'd like you to look and see with your own eyes. Exodus chapter 23, and looking at verse 21. At least write these down and come back to them, meditate upon them a little bit further later on. In Exodus chapter 23, and verse 21. Behold, I send an angel before you, this is verse 20, to keep you in the path to bring you to the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. Once again, we have the distinction in which the Lord himself is sending the angel. And as the angel of the Lord is coming, he says, I am sending him before you. Notice his authority and notice who he is. He is to be obeyed. You are not to provoke him. He says, he has the ability to either pardon or not pardon your transgression. And then he says, my name is in him. Once again, there is such the unity and the identity in which the angel of the Lord is Jehovah, and yet he is distinct from Jehovah. And this is just a picture and anticipation that this complexity is uh, going to be, to be found a little bit further. He's not only called the angel of the Lord. In the Old Testament, he's called the word of the Lord. And just to verify this, in John chapter 1, verse 1, you know that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, in that passage, it's describing his eternality. It's talking about his deity, that he indeed is the eternal, self-existent God. But, but as we have that expression, that he is the word of God, we find it also in the book of Revelation, Revelation 19, 13. I don't, I'm not asking you to turn to that one, but I'd like you to see it, that again, upon his name is given this name, that he is the eternal word of God. And so Revelation 19 and verse 13 says, He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. So the Word of God we know from the New Testament and uh, in, in understanding and interpretation, the Word is Jesus Christ, the one who took on human flesh. And so now we can go back to the Old Testament and we can see, once again, the distinctness that there is the Word who is distinct from the Father and yet is equal to the Father. And so turn with me to Genesis 15, Genesis chapter 15 and verse 1. So much of this is important because it's an overview of the book of Genesis and great preparation into all of the uh, biblical theology. But Genesis chapter 15 and verse 1 says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me? Now notice, Abram responds to him and calls him the Lord God, Jehovah God. Now, there's also this distinction in which it says that the word of the Lord came to him. And so we're talking about a unique, distinct person or a personality that is there. But when the word comes to him, he's not talking about just the word that he heard, but he's talking about the word being someone, some person that had come to him and spoke to him. And he was able to recognize him as the eternal Jehovah, as, as the Lord God. We read about this same appearance of the word in 1 Samuel 3, verse 21. So turn to 1 Samuel 3, 21. And he appears not only to Abraham, 
but he appears to others later on in the history of the Jewish nation. 1 Samuel 3 and verse 21. Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So when God reveals himself, he's revealing himself by this person, the word of the Lord, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. So again, here is the Lord, and yet the word of God is equivalent to him, and that's where we're able to find someone who's equal to God, fully, permanently, he is God, and yet he is distinct from God, and that is the word. You'd read about him also in 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 9. You also read about him being the branch. You read about him being the, the servant. You read about him being uh, the, the, the one who has given the name, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In all of these things, we are recognizing that there's an anticipation, even in the Old Testament, that God himself, though he is one, is filled with a complexity through which we can come to the conclusion. God, the Father, is God. God the Son is God, and God the Spirit is God, and that becomes all the more clear in the New Testament. I think it, again, is essential for us to just come, and I want you to turn with me to the Gospel of John. Turn to John, because John is written primarily so that we could understand the deity of Christ. And you say, Jeff, man, you're getting so far off track. I really don't think I am. I'm just going to remind you, here's how we're on track. We're on track with a verse that tells us that uh, God is able to look and say, let us create man in our image. And within that, we have the complexity and yet the unity. And now we're able to say, now we gain a greater understanding of this complexity because that complexity is not just us and our. Now that complexity becomes Jesus Christ, the son who is God. And he's equal to God and he is fully God. I'd already quoted for you John 8 and verse 58, in which Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Now, that two words become really important because he says before Abraham was, and that's the word genomai, and it's the idea that before Abraham became, I was. The word was is from the word ami or ain, and it's the existence. And so he said, before Abraham became, I existed. He's not ever telling us that Jesus ever became. Jesus didn't become in his person. He always existed so that he could truly say before Abraham was, I am. By the way, when he was claiming to be I am in this passage, the uh, Jewish people took up rocks to stone him because they said he has made himself out to be the son of God. And, and if he's making himself to be the son of God, then he is making himself to be equal with God. They accused him of blasphemy and were ready to kill him because they understood exactly what he was claiming. Jesus Christ was claiming to be the eternal self-existent God. And that's what John 1 and verse 1 is stating. Everyone take a look at it. In the beginning was the word. The word was there is the word existed. So in the beginning, a me or existed, ain was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. Once again, all of that is true. Notice though, that when it talks about that he was in the beginning, it's the word ain, again, not genomai. He was, he existed in the beginning. So he's self-existent. And then it says, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. The word made, made, and made, found three times in, in verse 3, are all the word genomai, and it's all talking about those things that come into existence. Later on, look at verse 6. It says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. The word was is genomai. So there came, there came into existence a man, John, who is from God. And then skip all the way down and look at verse 14. And the word, the word that already was God, the word that has already existed eternally as God, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became there is the word again from genomai. So he became flesh. 
So he has always existed, and that's why John eventually would be able to bear witness of him and said, I told you that there's someone who's coming after me who was before me. What's that mean? That means that Jesus Christ, as a human, as flesh, was born after John the Baptist, and yet John the Baptist was able to say, though he has come after me in his human form, he said he was before me. That means he has always existed, and so he is eternal. And here's what we find about Jesus. We believe that he is fully God because Jesus has all of the attributes of God. He is eternal, just as the Father is eternal. He's self-existing, just as the Father is self-existing. He's omniscient, so he's able to look at all things, and he has no need for anyone to show him anything about the hearts of man because he knew everything. He was all-powerful. To say that he was all-powerful caused the disciples to be in awe of him. They would say, what kind of man is this who commands even the demons, and the demons obey him? Well, it's because he has all power and all authority in heaven and on earth. And he's able to command those demons because he's the creator of those de- demons, and he is the Lord and God over all of those demons. He demonstrates that authority and that power when he speaks even to the wind and the waves, and the wind and the waves obey him. And again, his disciples are in awe. What kind of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? He is the eternal God who is omnipotent. He is om- omnipresent. He said, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. He is himself the self-existent, eternal God. He bears all of the attributes of God. Not only does Jesus Christ, the Son, bear all the attributes of God, but he has what we would call divine prerogatives. That means that he does and receives what God alone does and receives. I have a simple question for you. Who is it that forgives sins? Who alone can forgive sins? Give me the answer. It is God. And if God alone forgives sins, when Jesus comes in and he says, I am forgiving your sins, everyone understood that he was taking on a divine prerogative. Who is it that gives life? God. It is God alone who gives life, and yet Jesus says that I am the one who lays my life down. I take it up again because the Father has given me the authority through which he said I both lay my life down. I take it again. Life was from him. He has this divine prerogative of life. How about worship? Who are we to worship? Are we to worship any other than the one true God? To worship any other would be total blasphemy. It'd be total, uh, it'd be total affront to God. God has said, you shall have no other gods before me. You should not bow down to them. You should not worship them. And yet, he says that we should honor the Son even as we honor the Father. And to honor the Son and to honor the Father means that we would bow, bow, bow down before him. And when Thomas would bow before him and, and worship him and say, my Lord and my God, for Jesus Christ to receive that worship, means that he is taking on a divine prerogative. He is able to do that, which God alone is able to do. I have another final question for you. Who is it that formed the Sabbath after the, uh, after the creation of mankind? The Sabbath was created for and by God. And yet Jesus comes and he says that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And he's the one who says that the Sabbath is, is made um, in such a way that he comes and he heals on the Sabbath, and that's not a violation of the Sabbath. And the claim that he was the Lord of the Sabbath is, again, to go undertake a divine prerogative. He has divine attributes. He takes on divine prerogative. But then also, this is a key thing, there is a definite link between who Jesus Christ is in the New Testament and the eternal self-existent Jehovah of the Old Testament. You say, well, Jeff, where does that come from? It's easy. It's stated for us over and over again in the Gospel of John. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the vine. And in all of these phrases, Jesus is asserting himself to be the great I am. 
To be the great I am is telling us that he is Jehovah God. He is equivalent to God. He said, Jeff, man, why are you taking so much time on this? I'm telling you why. Because people are knocking on your door consistently. And when they knock on your door consistently, they are trying to confuse you as to the who the person of Lord Jesus Christ is. And what we are stating from Scripture is that Jesus is the eternal God, creator of everything. And that when God himself says, let us make man in our image, that included not only the Father, but included Jesus Christ, the Son. And including Jesus Christ, the Son, he is the creator. He is the firstborn. That means that he is supreme over all creation because he is the creator. By him, all things were made. Without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus Christ as the creator is Jehovah God. And this is something that needs to be clear. I'm just going to pound it into you. Tim, can we say that Jesus Christ is Jehovah? Nods his head. He says, yes. Uh, uh, Bob, can we say that Jesus Christ is Jehovah? Nods his head. He says, yes. Dad, you believe that Jesus is Jehovah? Then Alyssa, when you're talking to someone in school and they question and wonder uh, that Jesus Christ is God, but he's a sub-deity of God, wherever Alyssa is. She's not here. Uh, she's, oh, she's doing nursery tonight? Alyssa, down in the nursery, can you say that Jesus is Jehovah? And she would say, yes. Christian, can you say that Jesus is Jehovah? And now do we have a biblical basis for saying that Jesus is Jehovah? I'm going to give you, this will be the last thing that we're going to do tonight. I'm going to give you several links from Old and New Testament through which we are able to see that Jesus Christ is not a sub-deity. He is not a lower God. He is not somehow less than equal with God, but being fully eternal, self-existent, omniscient, omnipotent. Jesus Christ is Jehovah God. He is the one who was there and said, let us create man in our image. And it was Jesus Christ and his deity that needs to be established. And by when I say the deity of Christ, I'm standing before Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, and I'm saying Jesus is not a sub-deity. He is not just a good teacher. Jesus Christ is the eternal, self-existent Jehovah God. And if you don't believe that he is Jehovah, then you will die in your sins. And that is not our opinion. That is what the scriptures fully are stating. So you say, well, Jeff, help me a little bit. Prove it. Demonstrate it. All right, let's turn together to Matthew chapter 3. Let's begin there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you just five links, and I know this is going to take just a moment, but within these five links, it's going to help you. Write them down. These will be passages that you want to use sometime when you're talking to someone that you really want to point to who the truth is about who Jesus is and how he is able to save. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 3, it says, For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Well, when it says, this is he who the prophet was speaking of, well, who was the prophet speaking of? Look at Matthew 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching. So, the one who is preparing the way, the one who is the voice crying in the wilderness, is John the Baptist. Simple question for you, Denny. Who did John the Baptist prepare the way for? He prepared the way for Jesus Christ. What is the proper identity of the Lord Jesus Christ? According to this passage, he is preparing the way for the Lord. Now, this is a quotation from Isaiah 40 in verse 3. Write it down. You don't have to look at it right this second. But if you do a parallel and go to Isaiah 40, verse 3, there's a quotation that says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. L-O-R-D, all in capitals, which is a translation of the word Jehovah. The voice is preparing the way for Jehovah. 
And if in the Old Testament that the voice is preparing the way for Jehovah, and in the New Testament, John the Baptist is preparing the way for Jesus Christ, you have a direct link that says Jesus Christ is Jehovah. Now, I don't believe that that was too philosophical. I don't think it was too theological. I don't think it was too deep. I think anyone can see that link, and they can recognize that Jesus Christ is Jehovah based upon a passage like this that is referring to the Old Testament. Let me give another. By the way, is that not convincing? Is there anyone here who says, Jeff, I'm not checking with you, man. It just doesn't make any sense. Is everyone with me? Steve, does that make close enough sense? You say, ah, from the Old Testament and New Testament, you can say and make this direct link that Jesus is Jehovah. Then let's make a second one, at least a second one. The second one I'd like to give you is from John uh, chapter 8. Let's have everyone, oh, I'm sorry, John chapter 12. Turn to John 12 and verse 41. The reason I'm going to stick with this one is because it's going to also be a link to, uh, it's going to be a link to Isaiah. So John 12 and verse 41 is a quotation God has blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. Does anyone have a cross-reference in your Bible? And could you tell me, what is that a quotation from? Isaiah, Isaiah what? Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, everyone understands what's happened in Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up, the train of his robe filled the temple. A voice is crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. He says, who shall I send and who will go for us? And he says, Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And then having sent him, he tells, God tells Isaiah that he's going to blind their eyes, harden their heart, lest they should see with their eyes. So he gives this quotation. Now look at verse 41. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Seeing his glory and speaking of him is a direct reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when he's speaking of beholding the glory of Jesus Christ and speaking of him, who was it that they had seen? They had seen the Lord of hosts, Jehovah. And having seen Jehovah, the Lord of hosts, this passage is telling us that Isaiah had beheld the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And having beheld the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, you take the eye link to Isaiah chapter 6, and you recognize that he has seen the glory of the Lord of hosts, Jehovah God. Jesus is Jehovah. It seems clear, seems plain, seems pretty easy, easy, seems pretty direct, and yet it is probably not even the most direct. Let's continue on, because I want to give you another. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1. And in Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to find two. Let's make it nice and easy, understanding that Jesus is the one who had appeared, and Jesus was part of that complexity of divinity that would say, let us make man in our image. And so within that, we find the deity of Christ, and we can see it through the rest of the New Testament. Look at Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 6. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, notice that is powerful. He brings the firstborn into the world. When he speaks of the firstborn, he's referring to the Son the eternal son, the one who existed as the son. He's known as the word. He's known as the angel of the Lord. He's known as the branch. He's known as the servant of the Lord. But here he is known as the firstborn, the son. And when he brings this firstborn into the world, here's what he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Now, if you were to go to this passage of scripture, go to Psalm, uh, in this case, I don't, I think it's not Psalm 89 that I'm looking for. It's, um, it's Psalm 97, verse 7. And in Psalm 97, verse 7, when it talks about let all the angels of God worship him, well, I need to quote it for you. If, you. if you want to take just a moment, turn with me to Psalm 97. This is something that, again, will be very powerful, very useful. It's going to help you to know what you believe. 
but also be useful for you to take as a tool and be able to show someone else, including your own children, who, he, who Jesus Christ is. It had already come and he'd quoted in verse 7, he says, uh, Worship him, all you gods, and you are exalted above all the gods. So basically, verse 7 and verse 9 are the translation of let all the angels of God worship him. And he calls him here instead of angels, he calls them little g gods. But who is it that they are to worship? Go up to verse 1. The Lord reigns, L-O-R-D, all in capitals. L-O-R-D, all in capitals, is a translation of who? Jehovah. Jehovah reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the multitude of islands be glad. Therefore, he comes down and says, let all the angels of God worship him. The angels of God worshiping him is the angels of God worshiping the Son, Jesus Christ. And according to this passage, Jesus Christ is Jehovah, the Lord, the eternal self-existent one. He is to be worshiped. He is Jehovah. Let me give you one more while we're at it. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Since you're already in Hebrews, it's an easy link. And the Lord in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. So he's speaking here to the Son. And as he speaks to the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, speaking of obviously of Jesus Christ within this context, he uses a direct quotation about him and he says, the Lord in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. They are the same, your years, you are the same, your years will not fail. Well, this is also a quotation of Psalm 102. In Psalm 102, you would go and you would find the same type of cross, uh, you see the same kind of context where it says in Psalm 102, verse 12, but you, O Lord, L-O-R-D, all in capitals, Jehovah, shall endure forever the remembrance of your name to all generations. That's just verse 12. Continue on and look at... uh, Verse 16, for the Lord, L-O-R-D, Jehovah, shall build up Zion. He shall appear in glory. Just continues on. He tells us uh, also down a little bit further. He says, the kingdoms serve the Lord. Verse 22, L-O-R-D, all in capitals. And then he comes down and says, of old, you laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will change them. That's the direct quotation that he had. And who is he speaking of in those verses? He's speaking of the Lord Jehovah. Jesus Christ is the eternal, self-existent, all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present God. And as he is Jehovah God, we believe in him. See, Jeff, man, you seem to go far, far off from the book of Genesis. I really, I really didn't. In Genesis chapter 1, we have this understanding that as a singular God, monotheism, he is a complexity. And within that complexity or plurality by which he would say, let us make man in our image, we are now able to go and we're able to understand that that complexity has revealed himself. And he's revealed himself by the Father being God, the Son being God, and the Spirit being God. So you'd come and you'd say, well, Jeff, I just don't see many verses that say Father, Son, and Spirit, that these three are one. You don't need to see verses. What you need to do is take the plain statements of Scripture, and you need to say, I don't understand exactly how it fits, but the Scripture teaches plainly that the Lord our God is one. He alone is God, and yet the Father is God. No one denies that. The Spirit is God, and He is a distinct person who can be grieved, who can be blasphemed, who can be sent, who can indwell us, who can minister to us. As a distinct person, we find that not only is the Spirit God, but Jesus Christ, the Son, is God. He is that eternal one, and this is essential. Because unless we believe that He is the eternal, self-existent God, we cannot believe in one who would be spotless, sinless, blameless, 
the one who would die as a substitute, who didn't need to die for his own sin, but he would come and he would die for our sin. This is the only thing that makes sense when it comes to our salvation, because we come and recognize that there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, and that is the man Christ Jesus. How can he be a mediator? Because he is both God and man. The eternal, self-existent God who takes on human flesh. And because of who Jesus Christ is, we can believe in him. We can trust him. Well, maybe it was just a little bit far from Genesis 1.26. But we'll get back and we'll look further at Genesis 1.26 and 27 and understand not just theology proper as to who God is, but we'll understand through these verses who man is. We'll understand what it means to be created in his image, to have dominion, and what it means that, uh, that we should worship and honor and serve him. Would you bow with me, please, and pray? Lord, tonight we've had a a really theological, deep academic study that's gone through and demonstrated to us from the Bible, both Old and New Testament, that Jesus Christ is Jehovah God, He is distinct from the Father, and yet He is equal to the Father. And we believe that Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth, lived a sinless life. He died as a substitute for us so that He can be given the name that is above every name, And that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Tonight we have sung and we've asked you to glorify your name, Father. Glorify your name, Lord Jesus. Glorify your name, Holy Spirit. We continue now to be able to glorify your name. We can't understand it exactly. We're limited in our understanding, but we simply believe what your Bible says. And your Bible says that the Lord our God is one. And yet there is this plurality that says, let us make man in our image. And that plurality is defined for us a little bit further, explained to us, given to us in direct statements by which we believe that Jesus Christ is the eternal creator, the eternal savior, our eternal God. And Lord, we worship him. If all of the angels of God worship him, then we too worship the one who has given his life for us. We are so grateful that Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. We are so grateful that he is the creator. We are so grateful that it pleased the father that all the fullness should dwell in him and by him to reconcile all things to himself. We are so thankful for what you have accomplished in this miracle that we have studied and understood and embraced tonight. Lord, I'm asking that you would protect and allow our young people, young men and women that are here, to believe and hold to these things. I pray, Lord, that you'll grant an opportunity, perhaps this week, where we could talk to someone who doesn't understand it, someone who's rejected it, and that we might be able to demonstrate from the Scriptures the truth of who Christ is so that others will come to know him. We already heard a testimony. We heard a story of someone who came to newness of life and the newness of life that they received is the miraculous power, saving power, life-giving power of Jesus Christ, the eternal God. Oh, how we thank you for what you have done in Judy's life. We thank you for what you continue to do in our life. And Lord, may we worship and honor you.